25th episode of the Tar Sands Diplomat. We're hoping you're enjoying the story. If you were reading an old-fashioned paper book, you'd know you were getting close to the finale. Please keep the comments and reviews coming in on iTunes and Amazon.ca. We appreciate it. And now, here's the author, Keith Halliday, reading episode 25. The Tar Sands Diplomat, Chapter 30, The Chateau d'Isère. We rushed back to Violet's office with our news. I called Camille on the new burner Blackberry that Violet had given me, and she agreed to meet us there. Where and what is the Chateau d'Isère? puffed Lefranc as we hustled along the sidewalk. Luxury chateau, I replied, often featured in Hello magazine, full of minor European royalty and Russian oligarchs. It's an old castle, and they say it's haunted by a peasant boy who fell in love with the lord's daughter. When they renovated a few years ago, they found a 500-year-old skeleton in the wall. I knew the hotel because Elizabeth and I had stayed at a cheaper one down the road, on one of our last trips together. I'd hoped a trip back to Belgium might rekindle something between us. Unfortunately, after I pointed out how close we were to the old bunkers of the German Atlantic wall defenses, Elizabeth began to suspect it was all an elaborate ruse to visit World War II battlefields. Plus, the hotel and its restaurant were terrible, in that peculiarly unpleasant Belgian kind of way. As I tried to explain over dinner that there wasn't much to do in the Belgian countryside besides visit battlefields, Elizabeth got it into her head that her roast rabbit might actually be roast cat. Lefranc glanced over at me. Well, I suppose the Chateau Laurier in Ottawa can't match real skeletons in the walls. Is the Chateau in Brussels? I explained that it was on the coast, not far from Kanakaheist. This was the town I told Sherlock about earlier, where there's an annual walk that commemorates the Canadian Army liberating the Breskin's pocket. Lefranc recalled the photos I'd showed him of the time I went exploring the old German bunkers there. Unlike Normandy, they're totally abandoned, and you can still go down inside half of them. This got Lefranc going. He lectured me on how Montgomery should have thrown the Canadian armored divisions forward faster along the coast after the breakout from Normandy to prevent the Germans from digging in near Antwerp and blocking the Allied supply chain. We arrived breathless at Violet's office. McGregor, she exclaimed, pulling out her Blackberry. My hedge fund clients want us to go to London so they can extract your brain. Does Tuesday work? I waved her off and shared the news, just as Camille was arriving. The Chateau d'Isère is the ne plus ultra of Belgian luxury resorts, said Camille as we sat down in Violet's office. It's extremely exclusive. Yeah, agreed Violet. She waved off the coffee girl and pulled the blinds down on her glass door. This could be big. You go to the Chateau d'Isère if you really want to get away from the hoi polloi. It's totally for corrupt African politicos and German industrialists on dirty weekends with the mistress. I'm guessing it means the bigwigs will all be there. If Kennedy is going, then Beto and Hravinsky might be too. Probably Sleeth from West Can and Mashinsky as well. This might be where the deal will be agreed, added Camille. We quickly came up with a plan. Lefranc would pretend to be a Canadian business tycoon on a romantic weekend with his wife. The wife would borrow the Apple laptop that Violet Stagiaire had used in the lobby of the Hotel de l'Imperatrice with the built-in camera and microphone. I suggested using Van de Vleert's listening gear, but Violet vetoed the idea and said she was going to a bird-watching shop to get us a wireless microphone with technology from the current century. Next, we had to agree on roles. Camille, said Violet, you should be the wife. You're more elegant, and you're French, and I may get spotted by a client. Ah, the expensive French wife, laughed Camille. I shall enjoy that. I have a dress that's been waiting for such an opportunity. And we'll tell the hotel flunkies that McGregor and I are meeting you for dinner. She dashed out of her office, 
and returned a minute later from down the hall with a high-quality Nikon camera with a telephoto lens. That way, she said, McGregor and I can wander around the hotel and see what we can see, as long as we're careful not to get spotted by the Canadians. The objective was to document as many names as faces as possible. Then we'd go to Beto and Hravinsky and tell them we are going to put the deal out on the front pages, unless they got Julian's investigation reopened by real police. If we play our cards right, said Lefranc, we might even be able to identify the murderers. We could even go to Sleeth or Marshinsky and tell them they have to help us get to the bottom of it. Unless one of them is the murderer, I pointed out. Kemi and Violet were supposed to pick us up in Kemi's black Citroën at 1pm the next day, so we'd get to the chateau well before our targets. Kennedy's note said they were leaving at 4pm. They were already 15 minutes late when I received a pin message from Violet saying that she was running late. A series of increasingly cryptic and misspelled pin messages arrived. When Violet's bright blue Audi finally pulled up, it was after 3pm. Lefranc and I jumped in. Violet looked more upset and agitated than I'd ever seen her. Camille was not in the car. The engine on Camille's stupid Citroën gave up, said Violet, just as she was doing a French driver thing and zipping in front of a tram. She brushed the hair out of her eyes. There's a scrape on your temple, I exclaimed in alarm. Are you okay? No, not really, she said, but I'm better than Camille. She's going to be fine, but they took her to the hospital for observation. She probably has a concussion. I thought the Belgian police were going to arrest us for blocking the tram tracks, but eventually they let me go. You should see the car. At least the tram put it out of its misery. Violet pulled into traffic, provoking the screech of tires and angry Belgian honking. A beer delivery driver in the next lane shouted and gesticulated. Violet gave him the finger and punched the accelerator. I was thrown against the window as the Audi rounded a traffic circle at speed. Three men eating at a sidewalk cafe looked up in alarm as the tires squealed. I gaped as I recognized Sleeth, Ravinsky, and Beto. The latter was dressed in the usual full Ottawa, but Ravinsky was wearing shorts, a Maple Leafs jersey, and had his baseball hat on backwards. All three had big Belgian beer glasses in front of them. I looked at my watch. Presumably they were supposed to be leaving for the Chateau d'Isère soon. Once we reached the E40 for the coast, Violet accelerated to 160 kilometers an hour. When we ran into an embouteillage, she slammed on the brakes, punched the hazard lights on the dashboard, and shouted at the German camper vans like a native-born Belgian driver. We were halfway across the country, which wasn't that far, actually, when she started to relax. I guess I'm the mistress now, she said. I grabbed my sluttiest dress on the way over. It would be an honor, mademoiselle, I joked. Lefranc looked at me with an eyebrow askew. I thought I was going to be the magnate. Awkward, said Violet, pulling down her sunglasses to look at us. This happened to me in high school. I picked the hockey player. What a disaster. She accelerated to 180 kilometers an hour to get around a Belgian minivan headed for the Channel Tunnel. Aren't you a bit old to be believable squaring Violet around Belgium, I asked. Old enough to be a tycoon, said Lefranc, offended. I'm a distinguished older gentleman. All right, stop the bickering, said Violet. Lefranc will be the tycoon. The reservation is under Joe Boyle, gold mining king of Canada. Violet decelerated and took the exit for the chateau. She pulled over on a country road, got her bag out of the trunk, and switched seats with Lefranc. Close your eyes. I'm putting on my dress. We sat in silence as Violet squirmed, rustled, and complained about the unfairness of pantyhose. Okay, you can look, she said a minute later. She adjusted the mirror to put on her makeup. Lefranc, the keys are in the ignition. Scratch my Audi, and you'll wish it was Mashim Mashinsky who was torturing you. The transformation was remarkable. You look exactly like a tycoon's mistress, I said. Her head snapped around sharply, almost causing a mascara incident. That was a compliment, I clarified. You're a beautiful woman, Violet. 
She eyed me for a minute. Thank you, McGregor. That was very nice, I guess. We arrived at the chateau. The bellman took the bags, saving me the indignity of carrying the Gold King's suitcase. Violet put on her sunglasses, took Lefranc's extended arm, and they walked into the chateau. I followed behind. I have to admit that they both played their parts very well. We walked across the lobby. There was lots of money in the room, but I didn't see Culloden, the Russians, or anyone I recognized from the Hotel de l'Imperatrice. Lefranc and Violet were invited to sit at the desk, while a perfectly dressed young woman checked them in. There were only two chairs, so I waited patiently behind them like the loyal business associate, or son from Lefranc's first marriage, or whatever it was I was supposed to be. Two glasses of champagne materialized in front of Lefranc and Violet, but there wasn't one for me. This was getting tiresome. Violet leaned back and beckoned to me. I know people here, in the lobby, she whispered. This was a mistake. They'll recognize me even in this get-up. We need to get me back to the room as quickly as possible. I had an idea. I moved around behind the desk. The woman's perfect facial control twitched ever so slightly as I leaned in to whisper. Going behind the desk was evidently not something one did. Madame is not feeling well, I said in English, not hiding my Canadian accent. The Gold King probably didn't travel with French-speaking associates. Would it be possible for her to be shown immediately to the room while I complete the formalities? The woman understood instinctively. When the boss's mistress is feeling out of sorts, every kind of line crossing is permitted. She purred to a nearby bellman, who led Lefranc and Violet away. As she did so, I took the liberty of looking over her shoulder and noting that the Gold King was in Suite 12, and Culloden was just two doors down the hall. I didn't see any names I recognized, and didn't have time to find out which room Kennedy, Beto, or Kravinsky were staying in. I quickly concocted contact details for the Gold King, and said that he preferred to pay with cash due to certain family entanglements. The woman seemed to enjoy elliptical euphemisms, and was happy to oblige. I pulled some large euro notes from my wallet and made a deposit, then I scampered for our suite. It was palatial. It had a bedroom larger than some of my staff quarters, a salon for entertaining, and a sunroom that extended out into the garden. Through the sunroom's sliding doors, we had a mini-garden with cobblestones and a breakfast table. A well-trimmed hedge screened our mini-garden from the neighboring ones. We were about to walk out into the mini-garden when Violet hit the dirt like she'd heard an incoming mortar round. Culloden, she hissed, pointing at the hedge and rolling out of sight behind the curtain. I drew back, but Lefranc sauntered onto the cobblestones. He dashed back a minute later. He's going running, along the road we came in on. We should break into his room before he gets back. The Tarsan's Diplomat, Chapter 31, Surprise in Suite 10. Break into Culloden's room? Are you crazy? exclaimed Violet, her eyes bulging. Everything will be in there, said Lefranc. While he runs, computers, files, phone numbers, everything. All he's wearing is his running gear, and if someone follows him, we'll know he's not there. You can't follow a runner in a car, objected Violet. Lefranc had already thought of this. Someone has to jog after him. Someone in shape. Violet looked at Lefranc, then at me. Fuck, she said. Lefranc and I gaped in astonishment as she ripped off her dress and stood in her bra, panties, and high heels, rummaging through her bag. Okay, she said. It's got to be me, and he's already got a head start. She talked quickly as she unsnapped her bra, threw it to the floor, and pulled a sports version over her head. Keep your burner phone on, she said, hiking up some running shorts. I'll call. I can't pin while I run. She jammed her bare feet into her running shoes and moved for the door. Oh, wait. She reached back into her bag and tossed me a box. It was the bird-watching microphone, still in its cellophane wrapping. She looked back before she pushed through the hedge and grinned. Don't screw this up, fellas. Then she was gone. Remarkable girl, noted Lefranc. The future of the Foreign Service, I replied. Until she quit, you mean. While we waited, 
I ripped open the bird-watching microphone box. I put the base station on the bed. It could wait until later. I found the batteries and stuffed them into the microphone unit, and made sure the tiny LED screen came on. It was small and designed to be hung unobtrusively in a tree, so it probably wouldn't be that hard to hide somewhere in Culloden's room. After about ten minutes, my phone rang. I could hear heavy breathing and footfalls. I can still see him. He's fast. Even if he turned back now, at least ten minutes back. The phone went dead. Lafranc and I grabbed notepads, a camera, and the microphone. I set my phone to vibrate. We slipped through our hedge, looked around, and then slipped into Culloden's mini-garden. As Lefranc had guessed, he'd simply pushed his sliding door closed when he left. You couldn't lock it from the outside. His first mistake, whispered Lefranc excitedly. We slipped inside and locked the glass door behind us, just in case he came back early. We could escape through the suite's main door. The first thing I did was set up the bug. His suite was similar to ours, and I chose an air vent in the middle of the ceiling over the main sitting area. It was nearly invisible. My phone buzzed and I picked up. 20 minutes out. This pace is killing me. I pocketed my phone. Lefranc was in the bedroom. I surveyed the suite. There was a black roller bag by the door with a set of golf clubs. A bottle of Gatorade and a runner's energy bar were on the side table. But where were Culloden's briefcase and computer? I began looking, carefully, through drawers and closets. Before I opened something, I checked if there was some telltale piece of paper or something similar jammed in to let Culloden know his room had been searched. I found nothing. Lefranc came out of the bedroom. The clothes he arrived in are on the bed. I found his wallet. Nothing in it but wads of cash and receipts from Brussels restaurants. I wrote down his credit card numbers. The phone buzzed again. The man is a machine. 30 minutes. No sign of stopping. Cramps. Blister. Fuck. The line went dead. We searched the bathroom and looked again through all the drawers. We went back into the bedroom and I crawled under the bed. Come help me with this suitcase, said Lefranc. I just checked quickly before. I kneeled beside Lefranc as we felt Culloden's socks, stuck our fingers down the lining of his suitcase, and kneaded his toothpaste. Nothing, said Lefranc. Not a file. Not a sausage. Is it in his car? My pocket buzzed. I flipped open the phone. All I could hear was someone coughing up a lung. Are you okay? I asked. No. Where are you? Just lying in a field with some cows, hoping I die soon. I twisted my ankle. Where's Culloden, I said. I glanced at Lefranc. We might have to make a run for it. Still going, said Violet. Who knows how far he's going today? You have at least 45 minutes. I'm going to hobble back now. If I'm not back by morning, name a high school after me. Pardon me, I said. I graduated from Sir John Franklin. She laughed painfully and hung up. Delirious, said Lefranc. Now where's that briefcase? There's nothing in this suitcase. It struck me. There's another suitcase by the door. His laptop and papers must be in there. I dashed over and flipped the other suitcase onto its back. I unzipped it, ripped open the cover, and reached inside. I pulled out a handful of women's underwear. Lefranc's jaw dropped. At that second, the main door to the room burst open. Kennedy stood there in workout gear, covered in sweat and breathing heavily. She held earphones in one hand and a room key in the other. A golden necklace with a small rectangle on it dangled around her neck and moved as she breathed. What the? she said, looking stunned. McGregor? She looked at the number on her room key and then at the door. Lefranc and I were even more amazed. The thought flashed across my mind that we should have locked both doors from the inside, not just the patio door. Kennedy looked at me, then at my hands. I put down her bra and panties. Then I jumped up and ran for the patio door. That turned out to be a mistake. She took three steps and brought the taekwondo down on me like a giant mallet. Even with luxury carpet, the fall knocked the wind out of me. 
I looked up to see Lefranc standing still in amazement until Kennedy struck him in the midriff and then felled him with a blow to the neck. Kennedy quickly closed the curtains and set up two chairs in the salon, in the corner closest to the bathroom and farthest from the doors. I tried painfully to get off the floor and onto my knees. Lefranc was moaning quietly in the fetal position. She grabbed a golf club and pointed us to the chairs. Her eyes burned with anger. Make a noise and I'll brain you both, she said savagely. She rummaged in her bag and pulled out some athletic tape. We're going to wait for Ian to get back. If either of you do anything, I'm going to scream rape and hit you with this. She brandished the golf club. I lifted myself slowly and moved to help Lefranc. His wallet, keys, and bottle of fly-by-night Russian jet lag pills were on the floor beside him. I picked them up, put them in my blazer pocket, and helped Lefranc into his chair. Kennedy glared menacingly at me. I decided it was not the time to tell her that she had ticked the box on authoritative boardroom presence for her next appraisal. McGregor, she said, tape your friend's legs to that chair, his hands too. She tossed me the tape. I almost caught it, but it bounced off my hands into the corner. Can't you do anything right? She said. She strode to the corner, grabbed the tape, and put it in my hand. Wait, she exclaimed. Is that Ambassador LeFranc? What is he doing here? What was I supposed to say? I thought to myself. Never mind, she said. Just tape him up. I rose and taped LeFranc's legs to the chair leg. He seemed barely coherent. I wonder where she'd hit him. Kennedy ripped open her energy bar, took a bite, and cracked open her Gatorade. This seemed to bring LeFranc back to life a bit. Thirsty, he moaned. Kennedy rolled her eyes. My dad always said show mercy to dumb animals, she muttered. She took a step forward and put the open Gatorade on the carpet. She took a step back, brandished the golf club, and told me to give LeFranc a drink. My life has sometimes looked like a series of missed opportunities, but I saw my chance this time. I stood up, twisted my back to Kennedy, and reached with my left hand for an empty glass on the side table. With my right hand, I reached into my pocket and snapped the lid off the Russian jet lag pills. Lefranc's Russian pharmacist doesn't bother with childproof bottles, fortunately. As I poured a glass of Gatorade for Lefranc, I jammed the jet lag pills into the Gatorade bottle. My heart racing, I put the empty glass back on the side table. I moved to hand the Gatorade back to Kennedy. She raised the golf club put it on the floor, and finished taping LeFranc's hands. When I was done, she told me to tape my legs to my own chair. Then she stepped forward. I flinched as she almost knocked over her Gatorade. She put a pillowcase over my head and told me to put my arms down. Then she taped them to the sides of the chair and removed the pillowcase. She picked up the Gatorade. I tried not to watch it. I didn't want to spook her. She was about to take a swig when LeFranc opened his mouth. Can I have another drink? He gasped. I watched, inwardly screaming, as Kennedy poured Gatorade into LeFranc's glass and then held it to his lips, and he drank noisily. Want some, she said, looking at me. Thanks for listening to episode 25 of the Tarzan's Diplomat. We hope you enjoyed it. If you have any comments, please send them to me at khalliday at tarzansdiplomat.com. And please don't forget to leave a review on iTunes or for the book itself on amazon.ca. And check your iTunes feed next week for the next episode of the Tarzan's Diplomat.